Welcome to Financial Plan and Explain. I'm your host, Mike Menninger, Certified Financial Planner, Founder and Owner of Menninger and Associates Financial Planning. Uh, I'm pleased again to be joined with two of my advisors on my team. Uh, I've got to my immediate right, Kyle Ryan, and all the way to the right, Ryan Keefe. Uh, thanks, guys, for joining me. Of course. Um, we've, we're going to be doing multiple weeks of shows on the various different components of financial planning. Uh, in last week's episode, we talked about different things associated with cash management, uh, you know, saving for kids and uh, home equity loans and, and credit, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we're going to talk about this week is about investment planning. Again, one of the six areas of financial planning. Um, but as I pointed out, and will always point out, each of these six areas are integrated with each other. So when we're talking about investment planning, sometimes it may be affiliated with cash management, certainly has impacts on taxes, some investment planning may be associated with retirement planning. So it's always important to understand that all of the different areas of financial planning are related, especially tax planning. But um, so really, let's let's talk about the first thing about investments. Um, you know, we're going to talk about risk tolerance next um, because there's so many different things we can talk about. But you know, people often ask, you know, what's the difference between a uh, an index fund versus an actively managed fund mm -hmm, yeah. or a passive fund versus an actively managed fund. Do you want to take that, Kyle? Yeah, uh, the first thing I would say is that, you know, there's there's no black and white answer to investing or really anything, because if there was, we'd all be doing it. Right, that's um, what, well, most people are, but. Right. <laughs> so let's start with index fund or a passive fund. You know, index funds, passive funds, they'll typically track an index. You know, very one very familiar one is the S&P 500, right? It's the 500 largest stocks in the United States. So an index fund is passive, it has low expenses. So anytime you buy a fund, you will usually have an expense ratio, which is how much the management company is taking back to charge for running the fund. So passive companies are pretty plain Jane, if you will. Um, they track an index, they're cheap, and that's what they do. Actively managed funds take on a different flavor. Um, actively managed funds, you know, you'll have funds that try and mimic an index, you'll have funds that can try and outperform an index. Typically, they will come at a higher expense ratio, a higher cost to you as the investor with the hopes of them outperforming the index that they're trying to track. So that's, you know, that's really as, as basic as it can be. Actively managed funds are actively trying to provide more value to you and therefore come at a higher cost. Passive funds, which work for a lot of investors, is you, know, you just sit in an index and it'll do what it does over time. Right, and so active, the thing about active is that it enables the fund manager to, uh, and this is what active mutual funds do, is they'll literally um, send folks out to the CEOs of the different companies. You know, they'll send a CEO out to Merck and to Pfizer and to all the different pharma companies to see what they got in the pipeline and, and then be able to report back to the fund manager and say, hey, you know, we recommend this particular company stock. We don't recommend this particular company stock. So that's part of the active management that hopefully allows you to outperform. And I, I love to use the perfect example of active management versus passive management. If you were in the S&P 500 index back in the early 2000s, the number six component of the S&P 500, Enron, okay? And so if you own the index, your number six holding went to zero. However, there were many active managers who were looking at it and say, hey, this is a house of cards. And they're like, whoa, whoa. 
I am touch, not even touching it with a 10-foot pole. Mm -hmm. So you hope to think that active managers are being able to do that. Similarly, you, you hope really quick is that there are also active managers at the time who are doubling down on Enron. So that's you correct. Both sides of the that's coin. That's correct. Right. That's correct. And you know there are a lot of you know popular ones from last year with. Don't do with no names. <laughs> 2020. Yeah, right. Exactly. And so you know they were chasing funds and chasing returns, and everybody piled into them, and all of a sudden it started doing poorly, and because they're double betting and everything else like that. But let's let's move on. The most important component of investing is understanding risk. Mm -hmm. And there are so many things. You know, one of the things that I've noticed over time is that people misjudge their risk. <laughs> it's time, yeah. our job, really, as financial advisors to truly guide them and understand their risk, help them understand their risk. Because one thing I can tell you, every investor is very risky when the markets are going up. Oh, yeah. The moment the markets are going down, I want out. Well, I want the highest amount of return with the lowest amount of risk. Of course. <laughs> exactly. The unicorn. Exactly. I, I want a high rate with no risk, not no, low, yeah, no, no, no risk. risk. Well, right. And so what it is, it's incumbent upon us to be able to help our clients understand their own risk tolerance. There are multiple ways of doing it. First and foremost, I just want to point out, what is the single most important component of risk? The, it's your time horizon. Time horizon, exactly. Because if, if, if I've got $10,000 to invest, and I've got 20, 30 years before I need it, I can afford to take dips. Mm -hmm. You know, inevitably, the market's going to go down at times. Yeah, my 401k goes down. I know I'm buying. It's a beautiful thing. You keep, <laughs> I don't need it today. I don't need it in 40 years Correct. from now. Yeah, you got Correct. him, you know, he might be a little more worried now. <laughs> well, you know, 29 and change. <laughs> but, um, but if you needed the money in six months or a year, you'd be foolish to put the $10,000 into an investment because just within the last 20 years, we have seen three occasions where the market's dropped. Mm. precipitously in a very short period of time. Oh, yes. So it, we have to make sure that we understand and help clients understand that as well as what their true risk is. There are tons of different um, questionnaires out there and it's amazing. Every single questionnaire loads their point values towards time horizon. Mm -hmm. It's not just how long you need it till. For instance, I may be saving for a particular uh, goal, yep. but the moment that goal hits, I need all of it. Yep. That's also a very important component of the risk. Right. Okay, I may not need it for 10 years, but the moment I need it, I need all of it. That's a big difference. That's a big and, story. And a lot it's a big of, difference. And a lot of people, um, similar to that point, think, oh, I'm retiring at age 65. I need all my money to be in money market Correct. by that point. Correct. It's like, no, no. You've, you're rolling that money out of your 401k, and then you need to live on the rest of your life. Right, that's correct. So you're not really taking it all out at once, and that's that's a very good point. I'm glad you brought it up because you beat me to the punch. <laughs> so what's next? Um, um, one, one other thing I would mention, too, is just inherently stocks. If you own stocks, one stock is not the same as another stock in terms of its risk, the same way with bonds and the same way with cash. You know, Owning cash, you can't lose value, but you can lose you know real value if you're losing to inflation. So right, there's also things correct. to consider with purchasing purchasing power, opportunity cost. So, but the main point is that one stock is not the same as another in terms of risk, just mm -hmm. because they're simply stocks. And a, another thing too, that, that I kind of got away with and I wanted to jump ahead. 
is diversification, okay? Um, so when it comes to diversification, diversification does not eliminate risk, but what it does is it kind of spreads your risk around. Mm -hmm. And so that would be the difference, for starters, the very simple difference between owning an individual stock and owning a mutual fund mm -hmm. or an index fund, doesn't matter. I mean, because if you owned an individual stock, anything can happen to that one stock, good or bad. I mean, we've seen a handful of stocks so far this mm -hmm. year rally incredibly, oh, yeah. okay? But that's the good news. If you owned one of those stocks and went up 100%, that's a beautiful thing. But what if that one stock was Enron? That wouldn't be a beautiful thing, no. okay? And if you owned the index, then the index might have cost you a couple percent, yeah. mm -hmm. okay? So diversification is not an assurance against losing money, but what it does is like, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to investing, for those of you who have 401ks and have some experience in investing, you'll see you have a whole list of different uh, investment choices. So what we try to convey to our clients as well as for investing, as well as when we build our wealth management models and portfolios, is we are firm believers in diversification because inevitably not everything is gonna be up at one time and not everything is gonna be down at one time. Although I say that tongue in cheek because there are times when that happens like 2022, the pandemic in 2008. But as a general rule, they don't all go up or down at the same time. And what we try to do is diversify, why? Because you've got domestic investments, you've got international investments. There may be things that impact one or the other. You've got large company investments, small company investments. They operate and react differently. You got value, you got growth. What's value? Your brick and mortar type of stocks and what's growth? You know, your, your companies that, your technology companies that don't distribute dividends and they reinvest in themselves with the hopes of growing faster. Then you got stocks versus bonds. And even with the bond world, you've got high quality bonds, low quality bonds, long term, short term. And so it's understanding what the appropriate place to be in, but when it comes to risk tolerance, is diversification helps, and bonds, generally speaking, are less risky than stocks. So if you have an investor who is lower risk, then you're probably gonna be in a higher percentage of bonds. Yeah, I, I don't like rule of thumbs, but the rule of thumb is take 100 minus your age, and that's the percentage of stocks you should have. It's it, Every person's different. That's why it's a rule of thumb, but right. it's, it's something I've heard. Before. That is correct. And it all comes down to need of money. Because if you're 60 years old, then you should be 100 minus 60. You should be in 40% stocks, because most 60-year-olds are staring down the need for it in retirement. Mm -hmm. But if you're independently wealthy, yes. then it's a different so that's story. That's why it should be. Exactly. <laughs> and it all comes down to the primary goal, or the primary risk component is time. Mm -hmm. So um, what's the next slide we're talking about? Understanding risk tolerance, how to invest extra money and what to do with it. Um, you know, what to do with wage increases. Well, this again, uh, when you guys want to pick this up. Yeah, I mean, the, the first thing I always t I try to tell myself as well as our clients, pay yourself first. I mean, you get, you get a nice wage increase. Uh, you know, step up that 401k contribution. Um, start putting money in emergency savings so you have something. Um, make sure that you are, you know, benefiting your financial future um, with a wage increase because what tends to happen is when people get these wage increases, their expenses, you know, kind of eat that up 
and all because of a sudden of the woohoo plan. Yeah, and then <laughs> and then all of a sudden you you don't know how you lived on the wage you did before, because now you're you're living again, very paycheck to paycheck like. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, that's correct. That's correct. And you know, again, pay yourself first is a um, sort of a not a rule of thumb. I don't know what the old wives or whatever the term might be. Yeah. But what we suggest to folks, as you pointed out, the first thing people should do is they should make sure that they have an adequate emergency reserve. Once they've achieved that emergency reserve, then they're going to start funding for goals. And if they have no particular short or intermediate term goals in mind, and retirement is one of those goals, what we have, a, again, a rule of thumb, if they get a 6% raise, take 3% and increase it to your 401k. Yeah. Have a goal like that. That was the main thing. If you're just if you don't have a plan, if you don't have a goal, you don't know what you're saving for. You don't have that psychological incentive to to save more. You want to avoid lifestyle inflation, like you mentioned. You know, we're we're all human. When we get more pay, I want that new set of golf clubs, right? But you you need to avoid that. And one way to do that is by having these goals, by setting this plan. For me personally, as long as I can invest 20% of my income, the rest is gravy. And if my life and if my inf income goes up. It's a percentage. So does my savings incrementally. And it, it allows me to not stress over what I'm spending because I hit my savings goals first. It allows me to avoid that lifestyle inflation. And I, I would also, you know, not just increase your investments in your savings, but pay down debt if you have it. I mean, you know, you get a nice wage increase. Don't just start, you know, saving and investing more because that debt might be costing you more than those savings. Oh, my savings goodness, yes. Absolutely. Yes, and, and we, we guide people all the time. You know, while contributing to your retirement plan is a good thing, mm. getting that debt out of the way is even a better thing because, you know, that debt is costing you way more the advantages, most cases, like this credit card especially. Right, right. And, you know, a lot of people also just, understandably so, they just want it off the plate. You know, their car loan, hey, I'm going to overpay my car loan instead of it being five years, it's done in three. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. And by the way, to your comment with the golf clubs, I've golfed with both of you guys before. My recommendation is that if you're going to spend money on clubs, get lessons. Get lessons. <laughs> That's All right. Anyway, it's I had to slip that in user. <laughs> So we're up against uh, our break. So thank you for joining us. And uh, we will be with you in just a few more moments. Do you keep up regularly with your investments? Where exactly are your hard-earned dollars going? Are you financially prepared for an emergency? I'm Mike Manager, founder of Manager & Associates Financial Planning. We believe that education and knowledge are powerful, and we want our clients to understand why we are making the recommendations that we make. It's your money, and you deserve to know where it's going, because it's not how much you make, it's how much you keep. So call us today to Welcome back to Financial Planning Explained. And we're talking about various different investment issues. Where we left off on the first segment was really risk tolerance, which takes on a whole lot of different things, as well as you know what to do if you get raises, extra money coming in, et cetera, et cetera. In fact, I wanted to go, I had a client once come in, hey, I'm getting a $20,000 inheritance. What should I do with it? And immediately they wanted to put into an investment. I said, I got a better idea for you. They actually had coincidentally the same amount in a car loan. I said, take the 20 grand, pay off the car loan, which was like four or $500 a month, increase your 401k contributions at the time it was tax deductible, 
and it turned out that she was able to take $500 extra to contribute to her 401k. She didn't have the car loan, which actually improved her debt. It was just you know, one of those things. And at the end of five years, if you just mapped out what the 20 grand was, it was over 30 grand because of the fact that she was, actually way more than that because of the amount that she was putting in with tax deductions. Yeah. And, and one thing I always like to tell clients and, and myself, if I have debt that I'm paying off, it's kind of like you're getting a guaranteed rate of return. Oh my goodness, yes. Because you're saving on that interest. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So this is this is a I hate to say one of my favorite topics because I got a whole lot of favorite topics, but harvesting capital gains and losses. Mm -hmm. This is pretty cool, okay? Because there's a lot of things that people don't think of with regards to harvesting gains and losses. First of all, defining gains and losses. Well, you know, if you buy an investment for ten grand and sell it for fifteen, you got a five thousand dollar gain. You buy an investment for 15 and sell it for 10, you got a $5,000 loss. Then compare the difference between uh, short term and long term. That's one year and a day mm -hmm. defines long term. Yes. So the beauty is of the four, long term capital gains get a special tax advantage in that the tax treatment of them are different and lesser than any tax bracket that you're in of ordinary income. Yeah. But then there comes times where you harvest capital gains and losses. In fact, you see this sometimes in down years mm -hmm. that you see a, a, a strong down push at the end of the year because people are selling investments to harvest capital losses. Yeah, right. So talk about harvesting gains and losses for a minute. Yeah, yeah. You know, you have a year like 2022 where stocks, bonds, everything is down. If you have investments that haven't been around for a long time and have just been sitting on gains, you have an opportunity where if you sell something at a loss, similar to having favorable trade. And let me back up. This is for a non-qualified account. This is not Good an point. IRA. This is not a Roth IRA. This is a non-qualified brokerage account. Um, so inherently, when you have gains in a brokerage account like that, depending on long or short, you will pay taxes on those gains dividends, interest, but not the point. If you lose money in that account, you actually get to write that off, again, depending on short or long-term losses. So in a down year, if you have the opportunity, you can sell a fund that's at a loss, capture the loss, harvest those tax losses, and then you can put it into, you know, whether you sit that in cash, you can put it into a replacement fund of some sort for some amount of time. So there's a lot of ways where, depending on the year and depending on your own individual tax bracket, it could be really advantageous to harvest those gains or losses. Correct, and so to point something out is they have what's called a wash sale. Yes. A wash sale means that, I mean, what they're trying to do is prevent me from taking that investment that I had that I bought for 15 and sold it for 10, sell it for $10,000, quickly capture the loss, and then rebuy the investment. Yep. You have to wait 30 days to buy that investment again or else it's considered a wash sale, and therefore I lose the ability to take the capital loss. Right. Yes. Okay. So what we find ourselves often doing is selling and buying something similar. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't buy this particular company S&P 500 index and sell it and buy this particular company's S&P. That's mm -hmm. cheating. Okay. But if I were to buy sell a large cap value fund and choose to buy a different large cap value fund that is different enough, it does not fail the wash sale rule. Yes. Right. Yeah. And, and one thing that, uh, you know, I just want to make people aware of is, is when you take large losses in years, 
you can write up to $3,000 of right. that off on your taxes. If you have more than 3000 that just carries over to the next right. year and subsequently until that loss is uh, That's correct. So and so people at first don't realize that, which, by the way, isn't fair, but, you know, when is the tax code fair? <laughs> um, you know, I got $10,000 of gains. I have to pay tax on $10,000 of gains. Well, if I get $10,000 of losses, I only get to write off three. But the good news is that you carry over, like you said. You carry over those 7000 so that you could use them against next year's gains, which you can actually take. And if I have a $7,000 carryover, I can actually take the short-term gains next year up to $7,000. Right. And trust me when I tell you, you know, we do all kinds of this stuff. You know, whenever we invest in client assets, we're always, at least the non-qualified accounts, we're always taking a look at the tax impact, okay? We generally, I hate to use the word never, always, you know, but we generally never like to take short-term capital gains because they're considered to be ordinary income. We'll try to offset them with losses or what have you, but a lot of times at the end of the year, I mean, Q4 to us is our busy season. It's like the accountants have Q1 as their tax season. Mm -hmm. For us as financial planners, Q4 is our tax season because we're doing a lot of tax planning strategies for our clients. And a lot of the tax planning strategies may be looking at their investments. Yeah. And tricky stuff. I mean, you got to look at, you know, when you got highly appreciated stock, we just, we just got a client in that we're looking at, um, they have a $400,000 account with $200,000 of unrealized long-term gains. Mm -hmm. And so now we're up against, what do we do now? Okay, so in this particular instance, we're juggling a bunch of things. So first of all, in this particular instance, uh, given their circumstances, is that we can actually take $40,000 in long-term gains and pay no tax. That's a no-brainer. We grab that. Above and beyond that, we have to pay 15% tax. Or not we. <laughs> I'm not the mouse. Yeah. Here, anyway, they have to pay 15% capital gains tax. But then you have to weigh out. She got $200,000 in capital gains. Okay, her income is increasing, et cetera, et cetera. It may take us five, six, seven years to get rid of those gains. However, in taking a closer look at the accounts, she has some super risky investments in there. So, you know, harvesting gains and losses is very important when it comes to taxes, but it also is very important when it comes to overall investment planning and measuring someone's yeah, risk. And, and one uh, client situation that we had not too long ago uh, was we actually had an elderly client who had a, a decent uh, non-qualified account, um, and you know, they weren't the family wasn't really sure health-wise if he was going to make it year to year. So at the end of every year, what we were doing is we were uh, realizing all of his losses because once he dies, everything gets a step up in basis. Right. So anything that was highly appreciated at a gain, we were leaving alone, and you know, basically letting that step up eat up all that tax. Right, and, and for, then, for the purpose of the viewer, what a step right. up in basis means yeah. is that if I die and I am holding on to an investment that's worth $100,000, but I paid $20,000 for it, in my lifetime, if I were to sell that investment, I would have to pay the gains on that $80,000. However, if I die, whoever inherits that stock 
inherits it as if they paid $100,000 for the stock. So that's important to know, again, as far as financial planning, it's tax planning strategies, it's estate planning, it's, it's understanding that if they happen to have a bunch of stock that's overweighted in one particular area, then you may look at offsetting that risk by investing, again, going back to the diversification, you know, here we are juggling a bunch of balls. And there's a lot of different things when it comes to that. Um, what else do we have because we're running low? Let's talk about one other thing before we get to the end of this episode because we're wrapping up, is the backdoor Roth IRA. Okay, the backdoor Roth IRA is something that occurred in 2010. In 2010, what happened was prior to 2010 tax law changes, um, if you made over 100,000 AGI, you weren't allowed to do a Roth IRA conversion, okay? So they lifted that. And they also created some other thing at the time that you could do a conversion and spread the tax over two years. But that's not happened with the Roth. What happened here is by lifting that Roth IRA conversion with uh, limits, a lot of people were previously not able to convert, it enabled them to convert. But what it also did is it opened the door for people who did not, her income was too high to contribute to a Roth IRA. But since they lifted that, what they did is they actually contributed to an IRA, but their income was too high, they didn't get a tax deduction. So back then it was $5,000. So they contributed $5,000 to an IRA their income was too high, they couldn't contribute to a Roth, they couldn't deduct the IRA. So they contribute 5,000, deductible IRA. So they contribute $5,000 and they just don't deduct it. But then they immediately convert that IRA to a Roth IRA and they pay taxes on the growth, which is zero. Effectively, at the end of the day, what happened? They just contributed $5,000 to their Roth IRA. Yep. And so the only caveat, because I did it with like five or six people right at that time in January, the only caveat is that what it does is it takes a look at the pro rata rule. If I have other IRAs, let's say I have $100,000 in IRAs, and I contribute $5,000 to a non-deductible IRA, I convert $5,000, only five one-hundredths of it is tax-free. Yes. So just... Be cognizant of that. But the backdoor Roth IRA is a, it's a cool tool. Unfortunately, for the people who are high earners and way above it, five or six or $7,000 is kind of like spitting in the ocean. It's a drop in the bucket. But hey, every little bit counts if you can do it. Um, There's also um, another way that you can get more money into it is if you have the ability with your, within your 401k to make after-tax contributions to your 401k and also have the ability to convert within your 401k. Um, you're, and your, your plan allows it. You're able to contribute, I believe the number is 66,200 with employer match. So you make your deductible portion, right? You're contributing to the 401k, whether it's Roth or traditional, you make that contribution. And you can make after-tax contributions if you're maxing it out above and beyond that, which could be just throwing out a hypothetical number. It could be like $30,000 that you're putting into this that you can then take and convert. So. Your plan has to allow for after-tax contributions, and it has to allow for conversions. Inside. Inside so, of the so, 401k. So which, by the way, way, in my experience, I've seen a few of them. It's just worth noting. Absolutely. And it's a great idea because of the fact that a lot of people can do it. Um, the other thing that I, I'm always cautious 
about doing Roth IRA conversions of the back door and what you're talking about, which actually they referred to, I think somebody called it the supercharged backdoor Roth IRA. The problem is, is that every time they're talking about doing law revisions of some sort, guess what's sitting on the table is the state taxes and the backdoor Roth. What they're basically saying is they're gonna, they're talking about eliminating the conversion of after-tax money. So our only precaution to you is be careful of that potential tax law change occurring, making it ineligible in the future. Yep. So that's all we got for today's episode. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Kyle and Ryan, for joining me. And thank you for watching. And we look forward to seeing you on the next few episodes. We're going to be talking about uh, different facets of retirement planning. So stay tuned for future episodes. And I hope you have a good rest of your day.